What's the biggest way for God's people to make an impact in the world and leave their mark? Welcome to the All Things to All People podcast. This is Michael Burns. Glad to have you back. This is episode number five. And we're going to get in today. We're continuing to talk about the All Things to All People book. And we're going to get into this topic of how we can leave our mark through love and make an impact not only with one another and in our community, but in the world as a whole. So we'll jump into that in just a minute. This is Michael Burns. I'm glad to have you back on the All Things to All People podcast, episode five. Today, we're going to be continuing in the All Things to All People book, chapter four, the covering, loving others. To this point, um, we have gone through the introduction and the first three chapters of the book, and we have hit uh, kind of our first three elements in in section one first three of four elements uh, of the the king's vision god's vision for his people chapter one was the purpose being image bearers chapter two we talked about the mission to gather the nations and then in chapter three we looked at uh, the task to be all things to all people so as i said today we're going to get into uh, loving others. And uh, it'll be an interesting topic, I think, today, because it's um, it's one that we uh, are probably, of of the, the four concepts so far, are probably the most readily familiar with. And yet, in reality, it's, it's probably the one that we struggle with uh, the most, uh, or, or at least, you know, definitely... Uh, up there in the top uh, two of of the four. Uh, but it's easy to say, yeah, as Christians, we are called to love one another. We love one another. We'll, you know, Jesus' disciples will be known by the way we love one another. It's easy to say that. It's much more difficult, I think, to accomplish and carry out. So that's what we're going to jump in today. And I'll be getting reading here in chapter I love my wife a lot. I try the best I can to show her that love and be the best husband I can be, but I realize that many times I fall short. She's very gracious and patient about it, but I would rejoice if for her sake I could be the perfect husband. It can be so frustrating That sometimes there's a small part of me that wants to give up. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to give up on our marriage. But there are days when I'm so aware of my shortcomings and I'm tempted to give up trying to improve. Those are the moments when it feels easier to stop running and just lay down for a while. I start to feel like, what's the point? It's during those flashes when I begin to believe that I don't even know how to do better in the areas where I don't measure up. So why bother? The frustrating, the frustration level is real, and it can be overwhelming. Those are the times when her love towards me is incredibly encouraging. It doesn't take much, just a small gesture, but those tiny connections remind me 
that this is worth the headaches and the times of insecurity. Love makes up for a lot of mistakes and shortfalls. It's not easy to be a church that has embraced oneness and is living out the mission of gathering the nations. I've already stated that several times and will continue to restate it throughout the book because it is a truth that we cannot forget. Multicultural communities are among the most difficult things to build and maintain in the entire world, and that's not an overstatement. We will make mistakes. We will hurt one another's feelings. We will say something embarrassing. We will get irritated and downright angry with each other. We will endure instances when we're trying really hard only to be told that we're insensitive and still don't get it. We will sit bewildered as we're told that we need to be more culturally competent and we don't know what that means practically or even where to begin. We will feel misunderstood and that our efforts are underappreciated or never enough. We will, in other words, go through just about every daunting emotional struggle that is characteristic of any close relationship. In a very real way, these struggles are a good sign. Let me explain why. Typically, when someone runs a marathon or any long race, they push themselves to get the best time they possibly can. That's why they are sore the day after a marathon. For runners, it's not so much the distance itself that is taxing, it's the speed they keep up. If someone finishes a marathon and is not sore the next day, that's a pretty strong indicator that they took the easy way. That's not to take away from the accomplishment of finishing the distance, especially if that was the goal. But if someone was trying to get a good time and isn't sore, it means they didn't do the hard work of pushing themselves. Now, let me break in and say, this is an example uh, from my own experience. Uh, like to run, uh, occasionally run marathons, and it, it's just true. If you run a, a race of that length and you are not sore, you could have gone faster. And uh, that's what brings the pain. It's not the length. It's the, the speed that you push it in. Because once you're trained up for a marathon, if you went in a, you know, if, if, if you're shooting for, say, a, a 320 uh, marathon, three hours and 20 minutes, but you ran it in five hours, you would not be sore uh, from running a five-hour marathon, if you're, you know, if you have the capability of running under three and a half hours or something, so that's that's the point there. Back to the reading. If there is not some struggle and heartache in a multicultural community, then we're not going deep in our relationships. We are coasting. All those feelings of inadequacy and uncertainty, and even wanting to bag it and do something easier are signs that we're exactly where God wants us to be. The pain is worth it, but only under one condition. Love must be present. The Apostle Peter stated it succinctly and truthfully when he wrote in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. We will return to this verse often in this book. What is going to be vital here is to operate with an understanding of love that is rooted in the biblical view rather than that of modern love. Love is not an emotional response or a warm feeling, largely uncontrollable, as though the heart will love whom it will love. 
That's a popular concept today, but our world has managed to smuggle in infatuation and couch it in terms of love. Infatuation is just something that happens and is mostly outside of someone's control. Similarly, we like some people, well, others we just don't care for. And we don't have a ton of control over those feelings. But these are liking and infatuation, not love. Love is not strictly an emotion. It is a choice to demonstrate sacrificial loyalty to another. Affection and genuine like for someone will typically develop if you choose to love them. But they are not elements necessary for love to exist. Love is a choice. We cannot always control whether we click with someone or we get warm, fuzzy feelings when they come around or even if something about them just rubs us the wrong way. But we can control whether we are kind, caring, committed, trusting, and loyal. A very solid biblical case can be made that the biblical world faith could be and perhaps should be translated allegiance in many instances in the New Testament. If this is the case, and I think it is, then when the Bible calls for faith in Jesus, for example, it is calling us to allegiance to him as our Lord and King. It's very easy to understand why the primary identifying mark of the people of King Jesus is an unwavering loyalty to one another. In the biblical world, then, love and loyalty to others has to do with identity. Who is our primary group? Who will we share life and resources with? Who will we embrace as our people group in which we find purpose and how we identify ourselves in the world? Who will we give our first and best to? It's interesting that in speaking to his disciples on his last night on earth, Jesus gave them a new command to love one another, John 13, 34. A quick reading of the Old Testament will reveal that this is not a new command in the sense of it not appearing in Scripture prior to this. So, what is new about it? As I have loved you, he reveals, so you must love one another. Jesus loved in an unequal way. It was sacrificial. It was for the benefit of others and not just a mutual covenant to be loyal to one another. It is a dangerous love because it's not rooted in equity. It is simply given. The love that Jesus demonstrated throughout his life was one that made him lay down his life for others. The cross was not the first time Jesus displayed this love. He had done it right along. The cross was simply the final grand demonstration of the love that characterized his entire life. He put the interests of others ahead of his own. That is love. It's the kind of love to which he called us. Think of all the things that Jesus could have said would be the characteristic sign of his followers. He could have said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have constant church growth. Everyone will know that you are my disciples by how much you pray. Everyone will know that you are my disciples by how much you give and serve to the poor. Everyone will know that you are my disciples by how incredible your worship services are. Everyone will know that you are my disciples by how impressive your building is. Everyone will know that you're my disciples by how many programs and ministries you have in your church. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you teach flawless doctrine. Everyone will know that you are my disciples by how powerful your sermons are. Yet Jesus said none of those things. 
Though when we look at a majority of churches in the world today, we might half suspect that he must have made these statements somewhere, since so many Christians seem to find so much self-worth and identity in these very things. It's not that these aspects are bad. Some of them are very biblical, of course, but they are not the foundational characteristic or the most important thing for God's people. Now, Jesus said something far simpler and less impressive. By this, he declared, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, 35. That's it. Be committed and loyal to one another. Care for one another's family. Put the interests of each other first. That's how the whole world will know that you are my people. At different times in his letters, Paul used the phrase, all God's people. Sometimes he used it when sending greetings and sometimes when addressing a group of Christians. Given the larger context of Paul's letters in which we find this language, it seems to follow that Paul didn't just use this as a generic term that meant everyone. Oh, I'm sure he meant that too, but I believe that Paul also wanted to constantly remind them that within the diversity they saw in each church, and as they continued to be part of the gathering of the nations, they were all God's people. In chapter 2, I mentioned Paul's reference to loving all of God's people. I will expand on that thought here. In Ephesians, he praises the church for the many positive reports about them that have come back to him. He has not stopped giving thanks for them, he says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, Ephesians 1.15. They were concerned with and showed their love beyond just those who were part of their culture or ethnicity. How do we know that this is at least part of what was on Paul's mind here? In the very next chapter, he launches into a long explanation of how vital it is that they understand exactly what is happening through the power of the gospel as the Jews and Gentiles are brought together as one people and the dividing wall of hostility between them is torn down. He continues that thought into chapter 3 where he reveals that this coming together of the nations as one people is nothing less than the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3, 4. Paul wanted the believers to love one another just as Jesus had called them to do. But he was particularly concerned that they were taking the uncommon step of loving beyond the usual categories. Jews were loving Gentiles and Gentiles were loving Jews. That stood out. That showed the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3.10. They loved all God's people because they knew that they had been commissioned to make disciples of all nations, not just make disciples. They loved beyond boundaries. Let me stop right here and say um, how vital I think it is to uh, understand this as we move forward. And we've already talked about it, but to continue to kind of uh, pound on it so that it gets into gets into our our psyche in a sense and and that we see how valuable it is that that God has not just called us to go make disciples you know of whomever um, although we definitely want to do that but it's also to keep in mind uh, the importance of being the gathering of the nations to be diverse and this passage that we're reading in Ephesians, along with many others in the New Testament, really demonstrate that for Paul, 
this wasn't just a concept in theory, that the, the gathering of the nations had to be on display in every uh, locale, every congregation. And from time to time, you know, I have people ask me, you know, well, what, what about today? And, you know, you can drive down any major city and you can see, you know, uh, black churches and white churches and Korean churches and Hmong churches and, uh, you know, churches that are primarily rich and churches that, you know, just have mostly poor people in them because that's the neighborhood they're in or whatever. And it's it's very separated and we don't really see the gathering of the nations. And of course, there's that famous quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that Sunday at 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour uh, of the week. And so people ask me, you know, you see that, what, what about that? What would Paul say about that? And uh, of course, I don't know the exact words, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that Paul would be horrified by it, <laughs> that uh, he would be want to know what has gone wrong. How could we twist this uh, so badly to allow this sort of uh, separation uh, to, to take place and then to not even be uh, all that concerned about it, uh, quite frankly. And, you know, most of the talk I hear in sort of evangelical Christianity today, Christianity today on this topic uh, revolves around, well, how can, you know, maybe churches of different stripes, black churches or white churches or what have you, um, how can they work together better? How can we communicate better? Um, and occasionally there's a step or two beyond that, uh, but not much. Uh, where we're really wrestling with how to come uh, together as one. And so I think Paul would be very saddened uh, by the, the state of affairs uh, regarding that issue. Let's get back to the reading. The early Christians knew that loving beyond boundaries and loving all God's people would be hard. It's never easy to love, and it's even more difficult to love a diverse collection of souls. Anytime we have deep and intimate relationships, conflict is bound to occur. But it's much more likely when we also have profound differences in background, history, and culture. Only love can cover over these differences and the sin that will inevitably materialize in our communities. As he moves into chapter 4, Paul admonishes them, quote, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, Ephesians 4.1. He urges them to make every effort to embrace a life of unity because they are a walking billboard for God's wisdom as they show the world what the gathering of the nations looks like. Without this, how will the world know? How will God's people look at look any different from any other group or religion? Paul emphasizes that there is one body, and that's all there should ever be, because there is just one spirit, just one hope of resurrection, just one Lord, and just one faith, just one baptism into Christ, and just one Father of all. So how do we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, which is what he says in verse 3? Paul answered that in verse 2. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. As normal human beings, most Christians want things to be as easy as possible. We don't want conflict. We avoid trials. We'd prefer not to have struggles. We will sidestep challenges. If the path allows it, 
We feel that we shouldn't have any hard times in the church. We feel we should be treated with love and never be hurt. But Paul knows that this is not realistic. Love is the goal, not the constant state of affairs. It will be inconsistent, but we never stop aiming for it. Think of what Paul has not promised in Ephesians 4, 2. There is no promise that we will not fall short in our love for one another as we keep striving for it. There are no promises that we'll never be hurt, fail one another, let each other down, blow it, or even sin against each other. Instead, he directs them toward community choices like humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. And this, he says, should all be done in love. What does this promise? Disappointment? Failure? Sin? Shortcoming? Moments when we won't experience unabashed love? Anyone could choose to love in ideal circumstances, but think of what it demands to love when surrounded by unpleasant circumstances. That's difficult. That shows loyalty. By the very fact that Paul is commanding these things, it is a promise that we will need to employ these virtues often. Count on it. We will need to be humble quite often when we feel very much like doing the opposite. We will want to be harsh because of how we are being handled, but instead should respond with gentleness. We are called to patience because we are guaranteed that there will be times when we want to be anything but long-suffering. We can take it to the bank that we will encounter circumstances that will push us beyond our normal boundaries of what we are willing to bear with. This will happen. You will be sinned against in the body, so will I. And we will each do our share of falling short. We will be culturally and relationally insensitive. We will make mistakes. We will hurt each other's feelings. But we are to love. It is not by lack of sin that we will show the world that we are Jesus' disciples. It's by the way we love each other, despite all the reasons not to. There was perhaps no church that underwent more direct challenges to their unity than Corinth. They were apparently dealing with community killers that would seek to divide them at almost every turn. It's no mistake that in the midst of wading through all this potential division, Paul wrote what most students of the Bible agree is the greatest passage on love ever written. Paul opens the chapter with a stunning declaration. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13 one through three. Imagine 
that I could have the most amazing spiritual gifts, know every possible fact about the Bible, understand everything God is doing in the world, possess the deepest amount of faith, and be willing to put myself on the line even to the point of being martyred. How much would that benefit the church? If all that, if that were all true, you would definitely want me as a member in your congregation, wouldn't you? Think of the amazing lessons I could give. Think of how encouraging and enlightening that would be. Yet, if I do all those things but do not possess love, it would not benefit anyone. In fact, it would very likely be a detriment to the church because it would send us in all the wrong directions. Impressive spiritual gifts and programs are not the goal of Christian faith. Knowledge of God's word is not the center of the target. Even having amazing faith and enduring any persecution or hardship is not what being a Christian is all about. The point of being a Christian is to love one another. That's it. What does this love look like? Well, Paul says that. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. In the context of being all things to all people and embracing the cross-cultural adventure to which God has called us, Think of what this passage means for us. What will it look like to be patient with others when their culture is deeply different, terribly annoying, and occasionally disturbing to your comfort zone? How will you navigate avoiding jealousy or envy when you might be tempted to think another group is getting preferential treatment or receiving more attention than yours? How can boasting, pride, and trusting in our cultural identity work against love and become detrimental to the community? Well, at the same time, we need to be constantly aware of the impact cultural identity has and the importance of paying attention to it. What are the ways that we can dishonor others, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally? Do we make every effort to discover if there are ways that we dishonor or hurt others without ever being aware? Or is that too much work? Are we constantly seeking the good of others? How does this work out if we feel that it's our group that's being consistently marginalized? If we are not to be self-seeking, does that mean we can never advocate for ourselves or our cultural group? How do we maintain awareness of the particularities within our group and their needs without that becoming our identity? Are we easily angered by others' opinions or their actions? Are we willing to be as sensitive as we can to the needs of others while not being easily offended ourselves? When we all seek to be sensitive toward one another, but not touchy about slights or misunderstandings that come in our direction, the community of Christ starts to become what it is supposed to be. Do we keep a record of wrongs? We can find a lot of other reasons and justifications for keeping records of wrong without ever admitting it even to ourselves. Are we willing to explore that and ask others what they see in us? Do we secretly like to see other groups falter or get frustrated in their efforts? Do we like to see others fail? Do we privately enjoy not liking certain cultures or revel when they are, quote, put in their place through some events in the news? 
Do we seek to embrace the implications of truth, the implications and truth of God's gathering of the nations and let that determine how we think rather than how we were raised to think or believe? What does it look like to always protect, always hope, always persevere? Love is not just a challenge among a litany of other virtues. It is the preeminent value of God's people. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13. I'll break into the reading here for just a moment and say that I believe what Paul describes in this passage when he talks about the completeness or the perfection is the age to come. He says, right now, we are just a a shadow, a reflection, and a partial one at that of the age to come. We are working towards a time when when it will no longer uh, be partial, when it will be complete. Uh, But for now, our our love uh, is incomplete, but we still strive for that as our goal. Back to the reading. After the soaring poetical language of the first seven verses of this chapter, many either stop right there or they get so tangled in the weeds of some specific doctrinal discussions that flow out of what Paul says regarding prophecies, speaking in other languages, and just when those gifts will cease and what brings about that cessation. None of that's our concern here. In fact, I think far too often commentators get lost in some of those details that were hardly Paul's focus or even his concern. This is a poem about the importance of love in the community of Christ. That is what he's writing about. Granted, he uses some examples from some controversies that had arisen within the Corinthian house churches, but he's writing about love and not delivering a treatise on spiritual gifts. Although we will not love perfectly in this age, love is the only element of the Christian life that is an internal investment. Speaking God's words and praising him in other languages, impressive as they may be, are not qualities that will eternally be part of God's kingdom. Faith in the life of Christ and living in the settled hope of resurrection are far more important to a healthy assembly than are any gifts or abilities, but even those will fade as the present age gives way to the age to come. Love, that is what will last. That is why the body That's what the body needs now. And it's also the preeminent characteristic of God's people that will continue for eternity. Love will never fail. It will never become unnecessary. It will remain and is the greatest of all qualities that we can possess. We can only have some knowledge and some gifts, but we can pour everything we have and are into love. It is the fuel for the family of all nations because God by nature is love. I've read many good books on culture and Christianity, but I do not recall any 
that truly stress the importance of love as the beginning step for a multicultural community. We can have a perfectly diverse gathering of people that has all the best teaching and curriculum on cultural competency. We can have perfectly balanced cultural inclusion, flawless cross-cultural communication, and worship music that somehow appeals to every culture equally. But if we don't have love, we have nothing. That is the building block for everything else we will discuss in this book. It's easy to say that cultural competence is built on love, because it is. But what does that mean practically? Where do we start? Well, it starts in your living room, at your dinner table, and trips to the store, and your weekend getaways, and your backyard cookouts. And when you sit down to watch tonight's game or a new show on Netflix, in other words, it means you do life together with people of a different race, ethnicity, and culture. I've seen countless examples of multi-ethnic churches where this aspect is missing. People worship together. They might be in small group together. They have consistent social interactions together at church functions and would even consider one another friends. But once the formal meetings of the body come to an end, they go to their own corners, live their lives, and then come back together at the next gathering of the church or their small group. Their lives are not intertwined. They don't know each other deeply. They haven't processed tragedy together or learned what life is really like for someone who grew up differently than they did and is perceived very differently in the world. They've learned each other's public church habits, but they don't know their relatives and the ins and outs of their everyday life. Families know these things about each other. And if we're called in Christ to be one family of all nations, which we are, then, well, you do the math. Being part of a multi-ethnic church is still a better reflection of the gospel than being part of a mono-ethnic church, but we must go beyond that if we're truly going to be proficient at being all things to all people. We learn to reach out to other cultures by immersing our lives in relationship with members of those cultures. We will look at tools and concepts throughout the pages that follow, and we will enhance our efforts and keep us from running into too many roadblocks. But if we want to start this journey with love, then it starts with sharing our lives. Take an honest look at who you spend most time out with outside of formal church gatherings and ask yourself the following questions. How many disciples of Jesus that are not blood relatives are in the inner circle of my life? Do I share life with any disciples outside my immediate household? With those whom I do share life, are any of them of a different race or ethnicity, socioeconomic status, age group or generation, nationality? Do I really know what it's like to walk through life as a member of another cultural group? If not, am I open to learning about life from their perspective? How would I go about that? All right, that brings to a close chapter four and episode five today. Next time, we're going to jump into the second section of the book and delve into the dynamics of culture. How do we really go about being all things to all people? What does that look like? What does that mean? And we'll be in chapter five talking about uh, being all things to all people and being culturally humble as a way of life. This is the end of chapter uh, four, episode five. Look forward to seeing you next time.